From Luminary Media and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of David Coleman and the College Board. To give you a sense of how much jeopardy the SAT was in at that time, in a market of two players, ACT and the SAT, we were down in, of 2 million students by more than 500,000. Approximately so 500. 2 million students who take the test, 500,000 more were taking exactly the right, ACT. Exactly right, 550,000. Wow. And every dial was going downward. Had David took a struggling testing company that was on the decline and turned the college board into a business with over a billion dollars in annual revenue. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So there's a possibility that you've experienced some variation of this dream, which is you show up at a testing center to take the SAT, right? And you're nervous and you're sweating because the SAT is a big deal. There's a lot riding on that test, like where you get into college. And it feels like your whole future is riding on this moment. And in the dream, you start to realize you're totally unprepared for the test. And you start to panic. Well, there's a reason that so many of us have anxiety about tests like the SAT because they do play an important role in our education and in our lives. And if you've paid any attention to the criticism of the SAT over the past few decades, you might also know that lots of people are concerned about the ways the test can be unfairly biased. Biased against people of color and immigrants or families that just don't have the money to pay for expensive tutoring. Well, the nonprofit company that creates and administers the SAT is called the College Board. And the College Board has also been worried about some of those problems with the test as well. And this is where David Coleman comes in. David is the CEO of the College Board. And when he took over the organization in 2012, it was in trouble. The SAT was quickly being overtaken by its rival, the ACT. And many educators and parents started to write the SAT off. So David decided to do the most disruptive thing you could possibly do. He announced a total revamp of the test, and he wanted it done in less than two years. This was a super aggressive timetable. David took a lot of heat for that decision and others, but as you will hear, it paid off, and it helped to restore the SAT as the top college assessment exam in the U.S., Now, David didn't come to the C-suite via business school. He was actually involved in education work his whole career. 
Recently, I sat down with David for a special live onstage interview in Baltimore, and it was recorded at the College Board's annual conference for their employees. It's called Pencils Down. And we started out at the beginning. I grew up in New York City, in Greenwich Village, at a time when New York was different, like 14th Street was a carnival. And I went to, I walked to public school all my life. The most interesting of which was my intermediate school, which was right against the then housing project. So it was kind of wildly diverse. Uh, and New York then had a kind of unexpected, more dangerous feel. Hmm. And your mom worked at a university, your dad a psychiatrist. Yeah, many people feel my dad's profession explains a lot about me. Um, <laughs> and uh, my mom worked across the street at the new school. And were your parents, I mean, what was the conversation at home pretty rigorous? I mean, you know, that's some serious intellectual heft there, a psychiatrist, a university, an academic. Yeah. My parents, and particularly my mother, did not feign interest in what I was talking about often. Um, so, for example, one day I remember she was working on some stuff and I was asking her whether or not there's a God. And as you know, you can keep asking, why this, why that? And about the third time I piped up, she said, look, if there is a God, he's not worried about you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so lest you think they kind of sat at my feet and were interested in what I said moment to moment, that wasn't my experience. And were you, I mean, were you a cerebral kid? Were you a... Were you athletic? Were you really into school? I was um, not a super athlete, which I know surprises you greatly. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was a nerd, but I was particularly able to get completely lost in my own world. Mm. Uh, even when you we were driving a car or any other time, I could be on a different planet. I was good at that. Space travel was really my discipline. Um, you did eventually go off to university. Um, you studied at Yale and had a very distinguished academic career, Rhodes Scholarship. When did you start to think about education as a real profession, a real possibility? I think there are two moments. It begins actually in intermediate school when, for me, a set of teachers there were so formative hmm. that I was called to that power. And then the second reason was um, I was at Yale, and um, I couldn't make the tutoring time after school at the local high school. I wanted to be a tutor. So I visited with an English teacher during the day, and she said, why don't you guest teach poetry, which you love? And so I thought that was cool. At the high school. At the high school. In New Haven. And got demolished by the assembled students who saw me as fresh meat for the slaughter. And, uh, <laughs> and after a kind of catastrophic lesson... I kind of in desperation through a Hail Mary of a question, I was teaching a poem by Langston Hughes called A Dream Deferred. And I asked, I asked, just made it up on the spot, I said, why does he say a raisin and not a plum? Does a dream deferred, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? It's his famous line. And I said, what if he had said a plum instead of a raisin? Someone raised their hand and said, if it was a plum, there's seed and there's hope, but not a raisin. And uh, I had an idea then that why weren't Yale students sharing what they love to do rather than just doing community service. So I set up a new program where every Yale student, whether it's the newspaper or athletics or drama or anything or the arts, they could share what they love to do with high school students nearby. It was called Branch. So you were involved with that while you were an undergraduate. And did you seek to become a teacher? Um, yeah, I wanted to be a school teacher. And uh, so I go back to the New York City public schools. I go to, go to several schools. 
And what had happened was, is they were doing budget cuts. So they said, you know, last in, first out. Mm. So they offered me a position as a substitute teacher. And I just couldn't take it. I, I, I did another thing. So, so what did you do? I had actually turned down this other firm called McKinsey and Company. You can imagine their surprise when I told them, I don't want a summer job with you. I want to be a school teacher instead. Mm. And then I had to kind of crawl back to them and said that teaching thing kind of fell through. And they've told me that I had the most interviews of anyone who was hired because they thought I was so weird. So, and by the way, a lot of people who I've interviewed on, on my shows, on this, including on this show, on Wisdom from the Top, started out working in big consulting firms like McKinsey. Um, many of them say it was a real grind, but, you know, they learned a lot. I guess you kind of got into the education side of what they were doing. What was it that you were doing there? Yeah, you can imagine that I was the only one who, like, raised his hand and they're like, who wants to serve the New York City public schools? I was like, me, 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 me. And uh, that was when the rest of my McKinsey classmates decided I was very strange and began to distance themselves from me. But um, (laughs) what they did teach me was about finance, really understanding sunk cost. And and really, uh, I I was in a very difficult project once where I had to lead an effort to decide which plant would close, because one was going to close. And the interesting thing about that moment is everybody starts to lie. And the issue of really being able to understand what the big numbers are and not letting someone who's deliberately trying to mislead you, I felt the ethics of it. I felt so much better that I knew the numbers. And that's what I left with. So while, I guess while you were at McKinsey, you were going to like school board meetings or city council meetings, and you started to meet people who are kind of like in the education sector, including somebody who would become kind of a mentor to you. Yeah. At that point in my life, I basically moonlit on my business clients and was obsessed with the public education system. And the partners I worked with at McKinsey taught me a great truth. If you meet a few people in any job who have your back, a a great boss, everything follows. And they loved me, and they I did good work for them with our business clients. But they allowed me, mainly because no one else wanted the job, to really throw myself into advising school principals, uh, immersing myself in their lives. One person who became a mentor, interestingly, was the vice president of the teachers' union, who met me uh, yelling at me that I was a business know-nothing. Um, and gradually I said, you're right, and let's learn something. And we became lifelong friends. So you are um, sort of amassing this wealth of knowledge about schools and education, and I guess at a certain point, you, you're thinking, let me see if I can create something. At that time, you left and you decided to create a company. Yeah, see, I thought I was going to be a teacher, so I saved all my money at McKinsey. I lived in the huh. studio. And so I self-funded this dream. I thought I liked video games, and I thought it was really lame that no educational games were like the best of video games. Hmm. So I wanted to start a company called Grow, where we would make awesome video games that were also educational. Um, and by the way, you never know what is like to suffer defeat when you buy the wrong servers. So there were these servers made by IBM that were cheaper. So, you know, born, I shouldn't say this, but born in the kind of origins I have, you buy the cheaper server, you think you're getting a good deal. Yeah. And uh, except, except the problem was there were no systems administrators trained in those servers anymore, so we couldn't hire anyone, and I had to, I had to like, give them back. And that was more money than I'd spent in my entire life. Wow, how much was it? $50,000. 
Wow. I still remember it, each dollar. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and candidly, this whole idea of awesome video games that would inspire the best of learning itself hits a wall. It's too expensive. It'll cost millions of dollars. And we had to pivot and go to an entirely new idea. And what was the pivot? I mean, a video game is super ambitious, really costly. Exactly. So what do you do? And, and the funny thing is the word pivot is so much more graceful than what happened, actually, which is kind of... <laughs> You know, it's funny how truth accumulates, you know, when none of the VCs we saw would invest, you know, and when you see the client, they say, oh, sure, we'll try that with three of our students, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this is trouble. And it takes a long time before you give up your dream, um, and then you suddenly realize. So anyway, at the heart of our idea, in every video game, the cool thing about it is you can see yourself grow. Uh, You can visualize your growth, and it engages you. And we thought that, couldn't we take assessment reports, which were so dry and terrible, the reports kids, teachers, and others get from assessments, and make them an opportunity for growth and a way for kids to visualize their growth. Hmm. So we focused totally on making the results of assessments make growth vivid. So what began as a video game essentially became a sort of a way to assess students and teachers in a visualized format, was it an electronic assessment it, it or paper? Both. It was whether the paper, whether the assessment was in paper mm-hmm. or not. Our tools were always in print and the web. Hmm. The idea was that the printed report you get from a test should be an invitation to growth. It should help you individualize your learning and go forward. And so we designed one for parents in New York that gave them a custom list of books that were at the neighborhood libraries for their kids to read over the summer. In other words, why else were you giving a report to a parent yeah. at the end of the year? What were they supposed to do with it? So at its height, how many people were working at at Grow Grow Network? That really took off. That became 80 of us and were acquired by McGraw-Hill, where we grew to about 120. So acquired by McGraw-Hill, you are in your early 30s at this point. I want to just pause for a sec and step out of your professional side because you actually were also coming to terms with a a personal side of your life that you had not come to terms with. What was going on? Well, two things happen. One thing is we sell the company, and for, in perfect candor, without false modesty, I think my McKinsey class would have easily voted me least likely to succeed. So selling a company, I transform in their eyes. You know, I, I, rather than this mid-fit, overly academic guy into a successful entrepreneur and businessman, mm-hmm. which for them was like a holy thing. And I made more money, you're right, than I ever thought I would, or ever intended to. And so that kind of success is staring at me, but, but never my aspiration. Yeah. Um, but it did allow me to reflect on, it, on a question in my life that you've hinted at, which is for a long time, despite being a happy and genial person outwardly, I had hid my wrestling with my sexuality. And so it is strangely only after I sell the company that I fully decide that there are things in life more important than work. And I feel so blessed, not for the money, actually, but for the pause that let me see. And also, I learned that whatever angers or disappointments you nurse in yourself, whatever you neglect in yourself, shows itself in terrible ways as a boss. I felt uh, that there were times when I was building a company, and you can excuse a lot when you think it's all on the line. Sure. It gives an opportunity to be terrible and vain and all those things. And I knew that until I made peace with myself, when, you, when you're hiding, when you're gay and you don't act on it fully, you feel ripped off. You feel the world has stolen your chance to be who you are. And I know this may sound strange in our current climate, but the coming at home with that 
deepened my relationship with my parents mm. because it made it honest and open. It brought me closer to the world of faith mm. because I found, forgive me, the overwhelming power of love after years of catastrophic dating, to be candid. Um, so years of catastrophe followed by, in religious terms, revelation. I met my husband in a trashy dive and everything changed. I mean, in a sense, like this sort of foreshadows other moments in your career where you kind of had to learn how to be the person that you needed to be, that you were. Um, around this time, you, I guess, decide to start a nonprofit. You're out of the for-profit world. You want to do a nonprofit. It's called Student Achievement Partners. And pretty soon after you launch this, you kind of get pulled in to help develop this idea called Common Core. Um, how did that come about? How were you brought in to, to, to become part of that? You know what I most want to make sure everyone knows is the dead period in between. What some would call dead, but was very alive for me, which is, without kidding, a lot of time spent thinking. I was worried, you know, I'd made some money early in life. I now had worked at McGraw-Hill. And I worried about living a life of education. I don't know if any of you worry about this, without consequence. Feeling nothing had really moved. So I paused and tried to think about the fundamentals. And when I was at McGraw-Hill, one thing I noticed is that all the education publishers would slavishly follow the laundry lists of standards that every state made. So you could make nothing beautiful. Hmm. It, it disabled the entire thing. The tests were, were lists of were Russian roulette of covering everything. So we, we had an idea that shouldn't academics be fewer, clearer, and higher. At the same moment, we were just wondering about this, and we began to prototype it with no market or no audience, but to see if this would be possible. Uh, Stephanie Sanford was leading a brilliant effort with the governors of the country about why shouldn't we hold standards in common, college-ready standards in common. Mm -hmm. And so this political force intersected with the design team, and we gradually became the editors of the standards, where the principle was that you could only put it in if you had evidence to support it. No more asking kids to do things without evidence. I mean, this is at a time when there's a, a, a sort of a renewed interest or a new interest in these PISA test scores. You know, politicians and academics and experts are looking at kids in Finland and South Korea and Singapore, and they're saying, what is going on in the United States, right? The top 10% of American children are doing great, comparable to all those kids. But, you know, once you go down the, the chain, it, it's, it's a different story. Common Core was designed to kind of begin to address that. Yes, and even a simpler problem, the simple problem that so many kids left high school meeting the standards and then needed remediation in college. Hmm. So yeah, so we designed these standards to remediate that, to, to be a set of standards that, if mastered, would confidently make you college ready. And at that time, I mean, there was a wide group of people brought in. It was Jeb Bush and Mike Huckabee and even Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, and there were Republicans, there were unions, there were Democrats, there were academics, a huge number of people involved. Um, when it was finally, because this was started under the George W. Bush administration. You could even go far as Clinton announcing the need for national standards right. a long time ago. That's right. And, and then when it sort of was unveiled during the Obama administration with a program, I think called Race to the Top, where it was incentivized, the federal government incentivized states to adopt this. I don't remember it being immediately controversial at the time. It's very interesting. It was unrolled before that, and then the federal government chose to incentivize its adoption, which caused itself the beginnings of a huge counter-movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we made a fatal error. Mm -hmm. um, we did not adequately engage, it may sound surprising to you, the religious community of this country. Um, we did not engage the homeschooling community of this country. 
Now, that was because of a flaw in our thinking. We thought the standards would not apply to them. They were homeschooled. They don't need to follow the standards of the state. But it's not so simple. They're quite vulnerable to those movements of standards and care a great deal about the education of their children. They also witness Catholic schools or independent evangelical schools. They have, frankly, some wonderful ideas about learning. So our deafness to that community converted into a political force Uh, First within the Republican Party, then as you know, the Democrats were concerned about teaching and testing in ways quite unrelated to the standards, and those forces combined to attack the standards. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. So 2012, you are recruited to run College Board. What did you, before we, you, you described what was going on at College Board at the time, what did you know about College Board? What was your impression of what, of the organization, if you had any at all? Yeah, you know, my board chair is here, so you can blame her for their hiring error. The, um, the real thing I felt about the College Board was full of potential and far too separate from the life of high schools and the conversation in the country. Aloof, maybe. Successful and aloof. At one point, you know, clearly admirable in the AP program particularly, but in candor, I felt the SAT had become disconnected from the work of the high school. I thought it was ridiculous that you went through high school and then took this test called the SAT and stressed out about it. Um, And I thought that the corruption of this test prep industry suffocated it. And I, I felt from afar that it was 
is like a sleeping giant. Mm-hmm. And I have to assume that in the sort of the education, you know, and reform people that you knew and the sort of the whole movement that you were hearing things like the SAT is biased and it actually biases in favor of race and affluence. And that must have been something that you were aware of at that time. Oh, no question. And, 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 and mightily to my surprise, I walked into this interview process very late in the game. And I very frontly said to the assembled trustees, I said, what you've built is incredible. It's financially strong. It has amazing reach. But I worry during the years you've grown, your mission has faltered, Hmm. that you no longer represent what you once did, which is a disruption of systems like that, of merit and privilege. And that was what they were thinking. That was the amazing part of this conversation, is that the members of the college board were at that very same moment of wondering whether it was time to change. They had sought revision of the SAT, and my kind of irreverent posture, because I never thought I wanted the job, turned out to be closer to what they were looking for. All right, so you are in your early 40s at this point. Now you become the CEO of a huge organization. Did you, did you just, were you able to, you know, did you know what to do right away? Not at all. I, um, <laughs> I actually nursed a deep fear that I was good at small, not big. Because if you look at my career, I did really well starting a company. I did well with a small nonprofit that had an outsized effect on the world. And I did well at things where I knew the people. And at McKinsey and at McGraw-Hill, I felt that large scale daunted me, uh, led to bureaucratic processes that I began to... And so it was a real self-challenge to say, could I, in a large group of people, lead in a coherent and strong way, in a way they knew their work and we could move in a new direction together. I was quite uncertain of that. Hmm. Describe what the sort of the overall situation at College Board was like. Still, I have to assume, profitable, but the SAT was, is it fair to say, under threat by... No, it would be fair to say on the brink of elimination as a serious force in American society. So to give you a sense of how much jeopardy the SAT was in at that time, in a market of two players, ACT and the SAT, we were down of 2 million students by more than 500,000, approximately 500. So 2 million students who take the test, 500,000 more were taking the ACT. Exactly right, 550,000, and every dial was going downward. That had been a trend that had accumulated power. The view had spread that the ACT was easier. And I can tell you one thing, if kids think they can do better on one test than another, they will all choose that one. Yeah. So that's where we were. What was the reason why? I mean, I understand that the perception was it was easier, but I mean, that's a huge gap. 500,000, that's enormous. What, why? What was happening? I think that the college board allowed the design of the SAT to become automatic. They let the design of the test be what worked for a test and not what worked for people. To give you an example, uh, you know, we got rid of those things called SAT words. What is an Mm -hmm. SAT word? But a word you have likely never heard before and shall not likely hear again. (laughs) So when you build a test based on that, you can inspire only terror because what you're doing is you're making a test built on obscurity. It has nothing to do with what they learned. The more tricky the math is on the test, sure, you'll, you'll find some kids who can't mm-hmm. handle it. But what have you done? Like, imagine what it's like for an English language learner in this country to be faced with a wall of vocabulary that they've never encountered. So while the test was not racist in the sense that it didn't have differential performance by race, the items were tested carefully, 
It had huge intimidation effects. For many communities in this country, they did not think they could show their best work on the SAT and hence did not practice and engage in it. And that's terrible. So you get there, obviously, I have to assume there are other people at the College Board who recognize this as a problem. It needs to be addressed, especially with such a huge gap. You're a nonprofit, but you need a profit to, to remain sustainable. What do you have to do at that point? It was no problem. There was a strong consensus that in about 10 to 20 years we could change the exam and, and fix everything. Uh, it became more controversial when I said we had two years. Two um, years to do what? To redesign the exam and build the systems to Completely support it. Completely redesign the That's SAT. Right. Okay. Um, which I cannot describe the, the combination of laughter and despair that that inspired. Um, and so in one of the most interesting moments of my career, we charge forward towards the two-year mark and then realize at some moment, as I mentioned before, evidence accumulates when you're wrong. It begins to become clear we can't make it. You cannot make two We years. cannot make it. It's too ambitious. It's too ambitious. And we postpone a year and make it in three. So while this sort of march to hit the two years and then the three years, which was still ambitious, this deadline was going on, you are aware, you all are aware, there was a lot of criticism. There were was there? I didn't notice. <laughs> there were academics, there were teachers, there were officials, all kinds of people were coming out of the woodwork criticizing the college board for this move. There were, there were internal critics, there were resignations. I mean, you are the head of this organization. That is a lot of pressure. How did you know, or did you know, that you were right, that this was the way to keep going. You know, it's funny, Guy, there's a kind of um, self-love of the entrepreneur that creeps in at moments like this, where you describe yourself as all-knowing and brave in the face of the darkness that surrounds you. Um, and so if, if I can break it apart, I don't think entrepreneurship is that much about vision as much as it is about candor, about witnessing things. Hmm. So like, what I mean by that is, don't think dream up a new thing, think tell the truth. So the fact was that people found the SAT irrelevant and not related to the work kids were doing in school and unfair. That was just a fact. If we did not act on that set of facts, we were going to be defeated. Yeah. So it actually is the facts that finally unite everyone. That is, whether people said 10 years or five, they could see the writing on the wall once we stared at it. So, so let me play devil's advocate here. Let's say I'm on your team in 2013 and you say, Guy, we are going to redesign the SAT and we got to do it in two years. And I say to you, David, we can do it, but it's going to take 10 years. Give us 10 years. Why, why couldn't you do it in 10 years? Was it, what would have happened? You know, it's interesting. Um, frankly, what I said was the market will not be here when you are done. Right. And the year we complete the exam in 2016, the federal government passes a new rule that states can replace their state exams with either the ACT and SAT. And in one of those strange moments, we all looked at each other and said, had we not acted, we would have been wiped from the earth. Hmm. And that swell of confidence from the trustees, from the team, that we had rescued this thing from irrelevance. Mm -hmm. And I think the pride was not that we made a better test, though we did. We also believed that to make a better test was not enough until you confronted the evident problem that as long as test prep was costly and only for some, the test could not be fair. It mocked the idea it was about merit. Mm -hmm. So as you know, we partnered with Khan Academy to make the best of test prep free for the world. And at that moment, 
we could stand up and say, it's not our fault, but it is our problem. Hmm. That this college board will no longer look around and say, test prep doesn't matter. We will say, it is corrupting, we're going to act. Just briefly walk me through the process. I mean, there are about 120 questions on an SAT. Yeah, yeah. A little more, 150. Is it, or 150. Is it, is it like the New Yorker cartoon editor who has to who gets like 80 submissions for every cartoon they pick? Is it like, you know, hundreds of, of potential yeah, questions? Yeah, it is for that it? funny now. That's the great thing about the new SAT. <laughs> um, the first great move is to make fewer questions altogether. Mm-hmm. Because the worst thing the testing community has done, in my mind, is confuse quick and smart. So actually what we've done in AP as well as SAT is get fewer questions on the exam while still getting the information we need, giving kids more time. So there's now 43% more time per question Mm -hmm. on the new SAT than before. And so that's the first act. And then you're right. We throw out half the items before we even test them further. And then through pre-testing, we lose 5% more. And by the time we've built a full form of the SAT with all the testing, because every item must not discriminate by race or gender. So we test it with each ethnicity and background. And uh, through all this testing, uh, an SAT form costs approximately one and a half, half million dollars to make. Wow. So 2016, this new, newly redesigned SAT premieres and 40%, I think 40% decline in the number of kids who take it that August as ACT shoots up. I mean, uh, a lot more loud criticism of it. The math yeah. questions. I save many. now all the headlines that were driving the SAT into the ground as a point of pride. The um, math, too, too many words in the math questions. So the critics were saying, I told you so. This is exactly what we warned against. Were you worried in August of 2016? I mean, you were at a conference, I think a college board conference or an academic conference, where you said this was a tough year. Yeah. The toughness of the year, interestingly, Guy, was not about the numbers. We knew when we revealed a new test, people would panic and take the other one. That Hmm. was well known. Um, And by the way, be careful in your life to see the end before you say, I told you so. That's just a word to the wise. But, But what had happened to us is the education world does not, like the technology world, believe in version 1.0, version 2.0, on gradual improvement with flaws. They ask you to change, but then when you do, if there is an error, it is celebrated in imperfection. Mm -hmm. And so we got data to counselors and students far earlier from the PSAT, but we foolishly gave it to them both at the same time, leading to floods of tech-savvy students torturing their counselors with questions the counselors didn't understand about their data. And that hurt our relationships with counselors for a year. So that made for a tough year. We made the new data structures for higher education Mm -hmm. very flexible from the new exam, but we lost some of the hard-coded processes of the past. Mm -hmm. The math problems that you cite were beautiful and they finally applied math to the world. So everyone had complained before that math was disconnected. You know, and when someone's gonna rip you off of the mortgage, they don't warn you to take out a calculator. It is Mm -hmm. good to be able to apply your math. But we did then go through the entire math section and remove words. Mm -hmm. So I know this sounds strange, but our real motto was like, learn from it and keep going. Hmm. And uh, that's what we did. So you are the head of this organization. There's a lot of criticism, or at least amplified criticism. It's hard to know if it's a lot, but it's, it's amplified. You know, that's a lot of pressure. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people think of a CEO as a superhero, you know, resilient and unflappable. But did you, I don't know, did you ever get down? Did it ever get you down? Did you ever go home and just think, God, this sucks? 
Um, you know, it's funny. I think, if you don't mind me going back to my mom, my mom led Bennington College out of catastrophe. She was the president of Bennington she was College. Bennington College. Was but the press as she did it was vicious and weird. It started with a Rolling Stone article when I was in college that mocked her as a super conservative because she was cracking down on faculty-student relationships of a sexual kind, excuse me, and drug use on campus. And so she was very uncool, according to Rolling Stone. <laughs> and then the New York Times starred her as kind of Stalin on the cover uh, because she reshaped the college. And there, the sexist overtones, I mean, it was hilarious. It described her as too harsh, but only warm when she talked lovingly of her sons which was unconvincing in several ways. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, watching her beautiful steadiness through that yeah. um, was like, I'm very lucky to grow up with a real hero in my life who would not waver. And so everything that I experienced, and I had the full support of my board, and I had a great team behind me in perfect candor, seemed secondary to that kind of courage. And, and where do the SAT stand in relation to the ACTs today? It was announced last year and will be further announced this year to come that we have overtaken the ACT by a considerable number. I told you so. I don't know, the ACT is easier. <laughs> Um, all right, so the SAT now, once again, the most widely taken test, college, uh, college admissions tests. I, I want to ask you about something that, of course, I know weighs on your mind, and I have to assume weighs on the minds of your employees, which is children in America come from wealthy families. It doesn't really matter what their SAT scores are or whether they go to Boston University or UMass Boston. They will be fine. But a 100-point difference for a child from a low-income family can be transformational. That is still a huge challenge, right, for the College Board and, and presumably a responsibility. Yeah. Well, if you consider our founding mission, we were started to disrupt the idea that a few people from a few privileged environments were going to college. And at a time when our nation is choked by the facts and experience and perception of wealth inequality, there's no question we're in a dangerous moment again. Mm -hmm. Wealthy families are investing so much in their children these days that to then judge them by an SAT score at the end of the process mm. is perhaps not to reward merit, but merely certify the inequality. In other words, rather than just saying they're rich, you say they're better. And that criticism, that's what our toughest critics have said at us for a long time. And finally, the College Board has decided to say, you're right, that looking at SAT scores out of the context in which someone has grown up overprivileges the wealthy rather than those young people who have overcome so much. They may have achieved a lower score, but they have shown a resourcefulness that shows greater merit. So for the first time we've published for free for every college is an environmental context dashboard which offers admissions officers data about the school environment, the neighborhood a student has grown up in, and shows an adversity index. What have they overcome to achieve that mm -hmm. score? The Florida State used this to admit far more Latinos and African Americans. We're going to find more rural kids in this country. We're going to find more first-generation students. It is time the College Board returns to its roots of seeing talent unseen, not confirming talent already seen. 
David, the only thing, I'm only sad that this is not a video podcast because your socks are, have donuts on them, have pink donuts on them, which are amazing. Yeah. Um, they, they are Scarlett's favorite socks, so her spirit inhabits me. And uh, I wish my kids thought Friday was about keeping the Sabbath holy, but they actually consider it Devil D-Day, which is Dunkin' Donut Day. So. <laughs> Double D-Day Friday. So uh, last question that I ask all my guests on, on this show, which is, do you think that you were born a leader, that you had those qualities from, from you know, a young age, or do you think you learned how to become a leader? Any of you of my childhood that called me a leader would be extremely generous, um, especially because I didn't have many followers. Um, but if you don't mind, this is a strange answer, but I think there's room for another thing, which is grace, which is not that you're born with it or that you make it, but that you are gifted by something. And my overwhelming feeling being in front of all of you is that is forces larger than us, but also the force of friendship and the force of love and the tolerance of one another's weakness to do great things together. And I think I've been graced. David Coleman, CEO of the College Board. David, thank you. That's from my interview with David Coleman in front of a live audience of College Board employees. The College Board, by the way, was founded about 120 years ago, back in 1900. And even though the SAT didn't come into widespread use until after the Second World War, it's been around longer than you probably would guess. The first test ever was administered on June 23rd, 1926. And if you or someone you know is getting ready to take the SAT and apply for college, as David mentioned, there are free test prep materials available online from the Khan Academy. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions.